This week on the Electronic Intifada podcast, a student in Texas wins the right to carry the Palestinian flag at her high school graduation. Israel refuses to investigate the torture of a Palestinian teenager by Israeli border police. Plus, Israel breaks its pledge to allow family visits to a Gaza engineer imprisoned for two years without trial. New reports highlight the rampant bias against Muslims in so-called liberal California. We'll have an interview with our contributor Charlotte Silver about the rise of Islamophobia in the U.S. What we see is a very large majority of Muslims in America um, experience discrimination and physical attacks. And news from the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, including a report on how Israel's top government officials are stepping up their fight against boycotts. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, associate editor for the Electronic Intifada in Oakland. We begin in Fort Worth, Texas. Contributor Fida Elaidi reported that high school student Malak Abdullahi had to fight to be allowed to carry the Palestinian flag at her graduation ceremony in Texas earlier this month. The Electronic Intifada reported that the school has a history of celebrating the diversity of its students by displaying the flags of numerous countries during the graduation procession. When Abdullahi told the vice principal of her plans to carry the Palestinian flag, he told her that there wouldn't be a problem. However, the report adds, a few days later, the vice principal called the student into his office and informed her that the school's administrators were not comfortable with her carrying the Palestinian flag. Abdullahi said that she was, quote, not one to argue, and I didn't want to come off as aggressive, immature, or unprofessional. The vice principal explained that her commencement is a public ceremony and that the administrators did not want to make any of the attendees uncomfortable. After some time preparing her response, Abdullahi said that a teacher encouraged her to resist the administration's decision and to involve her parents, and reminded her that she, like any other student, deserved the opportunity to carry her country's flag. The Electronic Intifada reported that more teachers joined in in support of Abdullahi, and the issue was brought to the head principal. After cornering him in his office, Abdullahi, quote, told the principal that U.S. foreign policy should not define which students are permitted to participate in the flag ceremony and insisted that students from all backgrounds be entitled to equal treatment. The principal replied that the school's administrators had met earlier that morning and discussed if the Palestinian flag should be included in the procession. He told her that there was a particular individual who is especially opposed to Palestine being represented and that the person's opposition was based on the United States' political decision not to recognize Palestine as a sovereign state. Principal Hadley assured her that he would make his decision based solely on the high school's mission and eventually agreed to have Palestine represented at the ceremony. He said, quote, we will buy you a flag and if someone gets upset, we'll deal with it. It's your graduation and you have a right to represent your heritage. Abdullahi told the electronic intifada, quote, I cried. I felt so Palestinian. You can go to Palestine or any other place and eat their food and breathe their air, but it's not until you do something in their name that you feel that pride. Malak Abdullahi marched through the Fort Worth Convention Center on June 8th, carrying the Palestinian flag. Those were excerpts from a longer report by Fida Elaidi. For more on this story, visit electronicintifada.net. 
Our contributor Adri Newhoff reported earlier this week that Israel has refused to investigate the brutal treatment and torture of a Palestinian child. Newhoff reports that on February 6, 2010, Mohammed Halabieh, then aged 16, broke his leg during his arrest by the Israeli border police. Mohammed, who hails from Abu Dis near Jerusalem, needed urgent medical treatment. Yet the police interrogated and tortured him for five days by beating him, kicking him on his injured leg, and threatening him with sexual abuse. While being taken to a hospital, the interrogators punched Muhammad in the face, taped his mouth shut, and beat him with an iron bar. Two months later, the Palestinian prisoner rights group Ademir filed a complaint to the military prosecution and the general legal advisor for the Israeli government. Ademir received confirmation of the receipt of the complaint in April 2010. However, more than three years after the complaint, just over a week ago on June 18th, an Israeli military prosecutor informed Ademir that the file was closed without any investigation. The prosecutor had decided to send the file to the Israeli border police, but no investigations have been opened into the torture of Mohammed. After a one-year trial, Mohammed was sentenced to 34 months in prison for alleged throwing of Molotov cocktails. His release came before the Israeli authorities had undertaken any probes into his torture. Meanwhile, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has published damning comments on Israel's implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Israel's, quote, unavoidable responsibility to prevent and eradicate torture and ill-treatment of Palestinian children is addressed in the 21-page document. Those were excerpts of a longer report by Adri Newhoff. For much more on this story, visit our Rights and Accountability blog at electronicintifada.net. Reporting from the Gaza Strip, our correspondent Rami Al-Magadi wrote that one year after promising to allow Palestinian prisoners to receive visits from their families, Israel is still denying Dirar Abu Sisi the right to see his loved ones. Abu Sisi, the deputy engineer of Gaza's only power plant, was abducted in Ukraine, the country of his wife's birth, in early 2011. He has been held in an Israeli prison since then, and throughout that time, his wife Veronica has only been able to have three telephone conversations with him. Tal Linoy, an Israeli attorney who is representing Abu Sisi, accused Israel of reneging on commitments that it made to Palestinian prisoners last year following a mass hunger strike. As well as agreeing to allow family visits, Israel pledged to end solitary confinement. Yet Abu Sisi is still held in isolation. Although he's not been tried for any offense, the Israeli legal system has approved the extension of his solitary confinement on four separate occasions. The latest extension, for a six-month period, was authorized in April of this year. Those were excerpts of a longer report by Rami El-Magari. For much more on this story, visit electronicintifada.net. This week, our contributor Charlotte Silver reported on two new studies indicating the rise of Islamophobia in the U.S., and specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California. Silver writes, quote, Muslim Americans come from more than 80 different countries and four continents. They occupy different socioeconomic classes, subscribe to a variety of sects, and pursue all manner of jobs. Yet this highly diverse population has been shrunken into a single suspect class, unified now by its experience with Islamophobia. A widely debated term, Islamophobia, 
has nevertheless gained currency as the symbolic representation of the phenomenon of otherizing Muslims, according to Dr. Hatimbezian of the University of California at Berkeley. Two studies that attempt to quantify the pervasiveness and examine the many expressions of Islamophobia in the U.S. were published last month. Both studies survey a sample population of Muslim Americans, gaining insight into respondents' experience with discrimination, hate crimes, and harassment. Joining us to talk about what these reports show and the uptick in attacks against Muslim Americans and Islamophobia is Charlotte Silver. She joins us from San Francisco. Charlotte, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by having you lay out the climate of racism against Muslims in the U.S. Uh, Talk about these reports and the rising statistics of violent attacks and how, as you say, this is a diverse population that has been shrunken into a single suspect class. Sure. So um, I think what these reports provide, which is something that uh, we really don't have as of yet, um, despite the fact that we've been talking about the rise of Islamophobia um, since 9-11. It obviously has its origins before that, but this era of Islamophobia really um, begins um, in the post-9-11 political atmosphere. But what these studies provide um, are actual surveys of Muslim populations. So as opposed to relying on um, individuals reporting incidents of physical attacks or discrimination um, to organizations like CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, or even the FBI, which they do at a much lower rate, of course. Um, uh, The people who conducted these studies in California and the Bay Area um, selected a wide group of um, Muslim Americans in the Bay Area and also in California and and asked them in focus groups and also just on individual surveys what their experience um, has been. And what we see is a very large majority of Muslims in America um, experience discrimination and physical attacks. Um, In California as a whole, the Islamic Human Rights Commission found that 30% of Muslims have actually experienced a physical attack. Um, And in San Francisco Bay Area alone, the number was 23%. And so the the number 30% experiencing a a physical attack is the highest number that anyone has ever asserted. And this is in California, um, which is considered to be um, a more, quote, tolerant uh, state. I don't really like to use the word tolerant because it sort of suggest that we're tolerating something, <laughs> but um, both studies say that if this is happening in California at this high rate, um, we can assume that it's, ha- it's happening elsewhere um, at this rate, if not higher. Um, so I think no, seeing, seeing the pervasiveness of um, negative attitudes towards Muslims, 30% have experienced physical attacks, 40% have experienced some sort of discrimination, um, and 60% of those interviewed in the Bay Area study said that they knew someone who had experienced um, some sort of discrimination based on their religious appearance or identity. And so what I think is important to emphasize is that um, Islamophobia is not something that's being um, it is not sort of confined to the margins of society. You know, it's not, it's not just the Pamela Gellers out there that are perpetuating um, an Islamophobic environment. And um, 
physical attacks and hate crimes don't occur in a vacuum. And this is something that the Islamic Human Rights Commission really emphasizes, that um, individual prejudices are occurring within um, a climate of um, and a history of American uh, a com- American colonial enterprise, which has which relies on sort of demonizing another, and um, when I spoke to Zahra Bilou from Care, she actually said that Pamela Geller probably did something that she could never do, which was sort of create this um, this image of an Islamophobe that nobody wants to identify with. So, and remind it, people who Pamela Geller is. Okay, Pamela Geller is um, a kind of um, shock jock, uh, one of the most famous Islamophobes. We know she's responsible for funding um, ads in San Francisco um, that ask people to fight the Islamic Jihad. And so that, that incident got a lot of attention um, and drew a lot of people's attention to the issue of Islamophobia. And it, and it and it also made people think that they don't want to identify with that. So I think it's important to realize that people don't necessarily identify as being Islamophobic, um, and, but the evidence, the, the statistics from these studies suggest that it is more widespread than we probably realize. Charlotte, uh, let's go back to uh, the subject of the FBI um, that you mentioned earlier. How does the FBI play a role here as we see the agency infiltrating Arab and Muslim communities and enacting entrapment schemes uh, and then reporting relatively low numbers of hate crimes against these communities? What do you attribute to the data here? Well, I think that it makes a lot of sense that um, people in the Muslim community are loath to report or contact the FBI when uh, the FBI itself has proliferated over 15,000 informants into the Muslim community. I mean, the FBI has identified the Muslim community as basically the sole source of domestic terrorism. So as a result of this um, informant program, the FBI has fragmented um, these communities and made them very fearful of having any kind of contact with local law enforcement agencies or the FBI. So um, it's not a surprise that you don't see um, individuals going to the FBI for help. Um, They probably want to get as far away from this agency as they can. Um, But even, even on the, even reporting incidents to an organization like CARE, which is a, which is an advocacy organization, I think that what these studies suggest is that Muslims don't particularly want to rock the boat and they don't particularly want to draw attention to um, the, the issues they're facing. I think another issue is um, the Bay Area study in particular draws attention to is really the diversity of the Muslim community. So we're talking about this kind of like there's one kind of Islamophobia that um, is inflicted upon the entire Muslim community. And um, I think that, you know, just like we can't reduce this very diverse population into one group, um, we also can't reduce their experiences with Islamophobia. And um, I think that what the Bay Area study, you know, it's, it's, it's a prelim- It's the first study of its kind, so it's sort of laying the foundation for what could hopefully be more um, investigations and examinations of the Muslim community and their experience with Islamophobia. One um, one thing that I think is interesting is um, the question of what 
role socioeconomic status plays in one's experience with Islamophobia. Actually, um, the, re- the incidents reported are higher within the middle class or upper class Muslim communities. Um, but whether or not that is accurate is really unknown. It could also, that could be due to the fact that um, Muslims belonging to a lower economic um, group very likely feel much more vulnerable. Um, they may have, you know, they, have, they are struggling with um, language barriers potentially. They're, the jobs they're in are more vulnerable, less secure. Many different reasons that we don't know. And so you know, this is an example of the ways in which studying and examining Islamophobia really can be expanded. And I think that that's what these sort of, um, these sort of foundational studies are hoping to um, allow and enable. Charlotte Silver, you've been speaking to us from San Francisco. To read more about this issue and Charlotte's recent reports on these published studies on Islamophobia, visit electronicintifada.net. Charlotte, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. And now we go to news from the global boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Contributor to the Electronic Intifada, Ben White, reported that earlier this week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promised to implement the recommendations of a prominent think tank with regards to countering international so-called delegitimization and boycott initiatives. Speaking at the launch of the Jewish People Policy Institute's report, Israel and the Jewish People, Geopolitics 2012-2013, to Netanyahu described a campaign of incitement targeting, quote, the state of Israel as the Jewish nation-state as a wave which has been on the rise. White adds that the Jewish People Policy Institute's report states that, quote, anti-Israel sentiment on the settlements issue is gathering momentum throughout Europe and that the diplomatic stalemate provides a supportive backdrop to the embargo efforts against Israel. Citing Stephen Hawking's boycott of the Facing Tomorrow Israeli presidential conference as an example, the Institute notes a, quote, erosion of Israel's international standing and that delegitimization remains a major challenge to Israel and to diaspora Jewry. Those were excerpts of a report by Ben White. For more on this story and for much more on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, visit our activism and BDS blog at electronicintifada.net. And that's it for our weekly Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features, and reviews, pointed opinion and analysis, and action alerts by our team of correspondents and bloggers, visit us online at electronicintifada.net. This week, be sure to check out our newest features, including David Sheen's op-ed, Israel's Racists Step Up Attacks on Palestinian Citizens, Ala Tartir's Why the PA's New Prime Minister Heads a Papier-Mâché Government, also Stone Throwers of Nabi Saleh celebrated in a new play. Africans denied the right to work in Israel. A book review, an outspoken rabbi urges American Jews to look oppression in the face. California University president admits failure to curb divestment campaigns. And check out some of the issues and resources we talked about at the recent Allied Media Conference in Detroit using web tools and social media to help build a successful advocacy campaign, emphasizing lessons learned from the Palestinian prisoner hunger strikes, and much more. At electronicintifada.net, you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and we're now on iTunes. So be sure to subscribe and have the EI podcast automatically downloaded. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. 